Too many who know the angles Uncover and untangle All the questions and the webs left out to tangle be in I am mischievous Mark Giannacchio, and I own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, including the annuals, which do not count. The available Alan Shurstel, and I've read most issues of The Amazing Spider-Man, except a couple in like the early 200s, I mean, the late 100s, and maybe the very, very early 200s, which aren't so good. And I, I don't bother buying the print issues much often anymore, and I kind of read them on Comixology, and I'm a terrible person, but hey, I'm paying for them at least, I'm not pirating. And that's what makes all the difference. And welcome to the Amazing Spider Talk, the show where two fans and, you know, whatever you want to call yourself, Alan, uncover the strange, fun and fascinating history of the Spider-Man comic universe. Thanks for joining us for this mega-sized review episode of the Amazing Spider Talk. I don't know if the episode itself will be mega-sized, but certainly the comic we are discussing is mega-sized. You want to swing along with us on our journey through Spidey's past, present, and future. Subscribe to Amazing Spider Talk on your favorite podcast app, or you could do it like I do and like do it through the RSS feed. I'm such a weirdo. Every other week, <laughs> we put out a mainline episode of our flagship show, and sprinkled in between, we review new comics as well as interview some of the greatest Spider-Man creators of yesterday and today. Well, Mark, you were just out doing that in Connecticut. This is the perfect time to start listening. That's that's right, Alan. We're, we're teasing our Patreon folk with what's coming in Terrificon, although the people seeing this in their actual feed might actually hear the Terrificon content first. So we are like it, we're, we're crossing time streams. You are you are like Kang the Conqueror right now. Also, if you want to hear some of our older episodes, including older tremendous interviews we did with that, I think at Connecticut Comic Con one year, in fact, legends like Mark Bagley, J.M. Demetrius, Ron Friends, Tom DeFalco, etc. Check out our newer podcast feed, Amazing Spider Talk Back Issues. Today on the show, Mark and I are going to be discussing Amazing Spider-Man Volume 6, Number 6, a.k.a. Amazing Spider-Man Number 900. This, the main story of this issue was written by Zeb Wells, with interior and cover pencils by Ed McGinnis, inks by Mark Morales, Ed McGinnis, Wade Von Graubadger, and Claff Rathburn, colors by Marcio Menez, Dijo Lima, uh, and Eric Arsenega, and letters by VCs Joe Caramanga. The issue's second story, Better Late Than Never, was written by Daniel Kibblesmith, pencils and inks by David Lopez, colors by Nathan Fairbarn, and letters by VCs Joe Caramanga. Spidey Meets Jimmy was written by Jeff Loveness, with pencils and inks by Ted Nock, colors by Rochelle Rosenberg, and letters by VCs Joe Caramanga. And Save the Date was written by Dan Slott, with pencils and inks by Marcos Martin, colors by Munsta Vicente, and letters, of course, 
by VCs Joe Caramanga. Joe, that's a lot of pages you lettered. This issue was first released on July 27th, 2022. What's Well, folks, if you thought that that list of names was long and lengthy, wait till you hear our synopsis. Alan, are you ready? Do you want to like get a snack or or like, you know, get a beverage or something like because this is going to take a few minutes. With almost 80 pages of content, this issue is going to take a long time to summarize because just that much of note happened. So. We start at the site of former Fresh Kills Landfill. A group from ICM is excavating the site with a Dr. Petty who turns out to be some kind of android type thing who is in search of the living brain. Meanwhile, it's Peter Parker's birthday. What a unique thing to happen in a centennial issue. And there are a bunch of friends, past and present and maybe still alive, I don't know, waiting to surprise Peter, but he has the audacity of coming on time and before J. Jonah Jameson arrives. So Peter, who is already persona non grata with most of these folks, ticks them off further. Then Jonah shows up wearing the arms of Dr. Octopus and he's out of control. Still knowing Peter's secret identity, JJJ says, it's a job for Spidey. After Felicia Hardy and Bobby Morse try to free Jonah, he and the arms take to the street, and Spidey, and Spidey finally suits up to save the day. However, the arms drop Jonah like a hot potato and glom onto Peter. Peter tells Jonah to go distract his friends and family, and he'll handle the arms. Jonah says Peter has gas and has to go. Peter tames the arms, who have now taken a shine to him, which brings us to a captured Dr. Octopus, who is with this android being, and this guy wants to know who is Spider-Man. The android then shows up at Peter's birthday party and abducts, abducts all his friends. Peter and the octopus arms are searching ICM headquarters and stumble upon the original living brain. That's when a giant monster featuring the combined powers and personalities of the original Sinister Six, Doc Ock, Kraven the Hunter, Electro, Sandman, Mysterio, and Vulture get the jump on Spidey. It's a super adaptoid. Just like the one that showed up in Tales of Suspense number 82. Don't you remember? Nick Lowe does. So the android keeps trying to pressure Peter's friends to give away Spider-Man's identity. Which brings us to the mother of all exposition dumps. We find out that Dr. Petty created the original Living Brain, who is such a perfect bit of AI, he eventually takes over Dr. Petty's consciousness, or makes him an input, to become even more powerful. The living brain is forever tormented by his first appearance when he couldn't figure out Spidey's identity. He needs to know. Following this long speech, Spider-Man shows up, as does the sinister adaptoid. More fisticuffs are exchanged, which brings Spidey to discover Otto and the entire Sinister Six have been subdued by the brain, and the only way they can fight this powerful being is by teaming up. No one feels good about it, but the enemy of my enemy is my friend and all that, so let's go. Thus, Spidey 7 end up doing a decent job of combining powers before Doc Ock starts fighting the Six, which in turn makes the Sinister Adaptoid max itself out by fighting among its many personalities. So now the Six want to kill off the Adaptoid, and Spidey won't let that happen because no one dies, even if it's Zeb Wells and not Dan Slott. 
The six then turn on him, and it looks like Spidey's doomed until Otto's smitten arm saves the day. The living brain then gives a profound statement about how he learned who Spidey truly is from his actions and selflessness, even if he doesn't know his secret identity. He disappears the six and then reveals he does know Spidey's identity. Spidey is appreciative of the help, but needs to shut the brain down regardless. Felicia shows up to help disappear the brain somewhere safe and gives Spidey a birthday kiss for old time's sake while the jealous mechanical arms look on. Alan, did I, I always feel self-conscious about these synopses. What did you think? Did I, did I capture the essence of this comic here? You're not mischievous, Mark Janocchio, to me. You are marathon running, Mark, Gianoc- Mark Janocchio. I mean, you've done marathons <laughs> in real life, and here you just ran a challenging, lengthy endurance sprint for us all right here on the air without even taking a drink. So, Alan, one of the things I wanted to bring up, and this came up on the Twitter machine, if you will, if you if you are a frequenter of that hell site, I mean, it's a criticism, but we'll call it um, comments about this comic was that this seems like it was an inventory story, you know, something that's been kind of sitting around at Marvel with, you know, no really time and place attached to it that they busted out for a centennial, which, you know, kind of begs the initial question. Oh, so centennials, which have long been kind of these like special overhyped editions of Amazing Spider-Man, I guess we can just make them inventory now, which for me kind of left me really flat and disappointed. But, you know, is that a is that a me problem or is that a Marvel problem? Do you have any do you have any thoughts on getting an inventory for Centennials? Oh, God, yes, I do. I like that description because it definitely has that feel of an inventory issue, although I actually think this was probably more of an annual. And we'll talk more about that as as we go on. Yeah, this is a case where the content does not match the expectations, especially given the Spider Office's history in the last few big centennial issues of building to a big, exciting event related to the current run. This feels like an annual, not a centennial. It feels like a a direct tribute to the very first uh, Amazing Spider-Man annual, in fact. But it's certainly not something that this book has been building to. Uh, You know, I, I enjoyed a lot of this issue, more than a lot of people online, I think. But I kept thinking as I read it of what I thought was the most resonant and interesting page of, of Nick Spencer's run. And that was the page. I can't remember which issue it is because I'm never going to read any of those comics again. <laughs> but the page where Peter says no villain can make his life hell because his life already is hell. Everybody he knows is always in danger just because they know him. And no matter what he does in life, he always seems to revert back to the same sorry state. He can't get out of the rut he's been in since the 70s. <laughs> that was a fan's meta complaint made into a character's complaint in a way that I don't know actually works for the character. And and I actually think that the best way to address that problem in a comic book is just to write better stories rather than have the character mope about it. I felt like the first five issues of this new run from Zeb Wells and John Romita showed how to write interesting, even challenging stories within those sad parameters that Spencer made Peter Parker articulate in an actual comic book. This issue seems to me to give in to those parameters a bit. This issue feels like exactly the kind of thing Peter was moping about 
uh, way back in the Spencer run. Everybody he knows is in danger. He never gets anywhere. It all feels kind of the same. I think that you describing it more as an annual and specifically kind of like an homage to ASM annual number one is is spot on. I am the one that says annuals don't count, Alan. And like, you know, unfortunately, part of the reason why I've always critiqued annuals is with with a few exceptions. I always feel like they kind of just are things that are inconsequential to the overall narrative in a, in essence are kind of like inventory stories. I mean, it's like these are these are things that have kind of been sitting around and, you know, maybe maybe they they are tied in a little more loosely to what's going on in the moment. I guess for me what what kind of made this a bigger letdown was like, you know, it just it just felt like it was checking s- certain boxes. And that's not the it's not to say that they weren't doing, you know, giving an effort. I mean, they gave us, what, 72 pages of comic here. And, you know, like the art was and we'll get more in the specifics of this, but the art was really nice. And, you know, like Zeb Wells, I feel like he was trying with some of his uh, dialogue and story here. But like, you know, it was just kind of like, you know, like, let's play the bingo card of like what what we need in like an evergreen Spider-Man story. And it's kind of like, oh, it's a celebration of his history without really acknowledging, you know, what's happening in the moment in a, in a, in a significant way. And, you know, we, we, we kind of get into, well, you know, because of his misery, why do you do what you do, Spider-Man? You know, how do you get up and do it every day? And we kind of get these like... Like, no, you know, Spider-Man doesn't kill. He's a good person, even though he's in a bad situation and he can put aside differences with his villains. But then he still needs to, you know, take out the villains, but in a in a benign way kind of a thing. And like you said, that we, we, we got five issues that preceded it that were, I, I think, describing them as challenging is a good way of putting it. Like they, they, they just felt so different. And you just kind of this this book just kind of like enters the equation in this big thud and not just because it's this big thick book that runs you ten dollars it just it just like i feel like it just derails everything and i know when when the creative team comes back in an issue it's going to pick back up again and that almost makes me more agitated because it's like what is this then like what like why are we why are we hitting the pause button like why couldn't we have just integrated something into you know if not a issue this big just i don't know like maybe you do a double-sized story and then throw a couple of the the schlocky inventory things at the end like they did and not and not have to charge you 10 bucks i don't know but that's that's me thinking less like someone in sales and more like someone who wants to make good comic books i think once the stakes in this story became clear you know, about halfway through, and I really, you know, felt like I knew where this was going. The book's only tension was, is this the last page? And then there's a cliffhanger. And I will give the spider office this. They kept me going for like 30 pages thinking this has got to be the last page and then a cliffhanger. And then this kind of underwhelming, but, but not bad story will continue in the next issue. I'm so glad it is a a done in one. But you know, Mark, I mean, the reason, I, I've always thought the reason you and Dan have been able to, to work that do annuals count beef for years, like a couple of like 
really old wrestlers who keep having the same feud uh, that everybody knows is fake, but just might get worked up into a shoot one day if you both, I don't know, like your blood sugar crashes or something. <laughs> <laughs> the, the reason you've been able to milk that beef for years is that we know in our bones that these stories don't matter in the only way that comic stories matter beyond your in-the-moment enjoyment of the comic story. Which is the most important thing, of course. But when that in-the-moment enjoyment isn't really carrying you through, knowing that this kind of generic annual feeling issue is not going to resonate in any other issue ever, and that if it does... It will be footnoted by by Nick Lowe to tell you, you know, where this the super adaptoid originally appeared. It robs it of a urgency. Like you guys are right. Your question: Do annuals count? I've always wondered: Do you guys intend that as a collector question or as a reader question? Certainly, as a reader, I have often felt annuals don't count. So that generic annual feeling here makes the adaptoids big question who is spider-man kind of ironic because that's the question marvel seems to have been avoiding in the last couple runs of asm and it's the question that i felt like zeb wells was exploring like thoughtfully in new ways in the first couple issues of this run and then for it to suddenly for the answer to be those generic spider truisms that you already mentioned, you know, that he doesn't kill, that uh, he wants to save everybody. I mean, yeah, those are spider traits, but that's the kind of like corporate office answer to who is Spider-Man. That, that's, that, I mean, and that's a good answer. Those are adverbal traits. I enjoy that. I just feel like we could be digging for more. <laughs> there could, there is more to say. He has more traits, more angles, more to explore. That being said, I probably sound like I'm being harder on this issue than I really intend to. I actually enjoyed a lot of it. I thought it was fairly polished, well executed for what is essentially a classic, you know, Amazing Spider-Man 100 and issue 108, 112 or something, villains crash the coffee bean and the supporting cast is in danger story. The way that the question of who is Spider-Man, the literal question asked by the adaptoid, the way it evolves throughout the story, and the way we understand it first as a simple identity question, and then as something deeper, I mean, that's good stuff. That's pretty good writing. I just wish the answer itself cut deeper, or that the story could surprise us. And about halfway through the story, I realized there's no way the story is going to surprise me. Wells's other issues have surprised me, and, and getting this issue so close to the run start, I think does both this issue and the run itself a disservice. This run is about a depressed Peter Parker who let everyone he knows in both his lives down for reasons we don't understand yet. And at this point in that larger story, this issue gives Peter an unambiguous heroic win that simply because his his big heroic heart is being recognized by first by Ox Arms and then by a living brain or a super adaptoid or whoever all that worked out. Our hero here is being let off the hook and reassured that he is like a really good person who does the right thing in a way that feels unnatural for what the rest of this run has set up. And that certainly cuts against the truth of that page of Nick Spencer I was talking about earlier. Here we have an issue that 
exemplifies the fact that everyone he knows is always in danger because of him. And at the end of it, he is told, but it's okay because you're the most special boy with the biggest heart. And speaking of being let off the hook, why is everyone who hates Peter throwing him a surprise party anyway? That's a that's a great question. I mean, it, it it's clearly a a premise that, you know, because I think that's that's the premise because it's his birthday and we needed it for the centennial. So so talking about the party itself, like we got I got to take a moment about and talk about this guest list because there's some wild people at this thing. I mean, first and foremost, you get Flash Thompson, who I'm pretty sure was has been established as being alive in other Marvel books from the world of Spider-Man. The last time we Peter saw Flash was in Amazing Spider-Man number 800 when he died a very noble death. And, you know, this encounter is kind of treated like, you know, as a punchline, like, oh, glad you're alive again, Flash. Literally the words. We also get Bobby Morse, who is, I guess, Peter's short term fling during the Parker Worldwide slash Parker Industries arc. And that seemed like a bit of surprise. Some eagle eye fans spotted Vincent Gonzalez from the brand new day run, like the, the, the crooked cop who was friends with Peter. And it, 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 it was just a bizarre list of people in addition to some of the expected folks like Jonah and Aunt May, Robbie. Anyone, anyone come out to you uh, in particular that you wanted to call out from the party? Happy to see Anna Maria there. And I didn't catch Vincent Gonzalez, but he was an interesting character. I, I welcome him back. There, there's story potential there. But yeah, I was very happy to see Anna Maria. And I am happy to roll along with her terrible personal choices. This issue suggests she's always going to simp just a little bit for Otto, which is funny. She also did in the the Superior Octave, whatever the Otto spinoff series was that ran like 12 issues where he was in San Francisco. I liked that series quite a bit. And I'm also always happy to see Nora. And was that Carly Cooper in one panel? Is she dead? I don't remember what all happened with her. And and I love Jonah still helping and hindering at the same time with his knowledge of Peter's secret. That's interesting and fertile ground. But overall, I'm with you in that this kind of random lineup of supporting cast members is hard to make sense of, especially when it comes to what is, for me, the big question. And the big question for me is, are they all part of the current ongoing ASM story and status quo? Or are they here because they were whoever it occurred to Nick Lowe to throw in when this issue was written sometime in the last few years? I would love it if these characters are here for a reason. And with you, I'm sure we'll talk about this a little more in depth later. The moment with Flash Thompson was, I thought, the issue's absolute low point. I want to pick on something you said there because, you know, I I, I think you're onto something there, which was the fact that you feel like this was a comic that might have been written in the quote unquote last few years. You know, I alluded to it earlier. I mean, this this comes smack dab after the end of this this tombstone arc. And, you know, there's a new arc that's going to be kicking off with issue seven. That seems to, that's going to be about Norman Osborn and and this this kind of friendship or alliance with Peter that that has taken off that seems like it's going to go some interesting places this thing kind of like sticks out narratively tonally visually like I don't want to say a sore thumb because I I I do like some of the visuals in it so and we'll you know but are you implying that you feel like this is something that's been kind of like sitting in cold storage for a while 
It was that. Maybe it was a tryout. Maybe it was supposed to be an annual. Who who knows what it was? I get the feeling a spider office, and this is all just my gut. You know, I get the feeling a spider office sometime maybe halfway through the Nick Spencer run suddenly started weighing a lot of options. And that's maybe how we get this. That's maybe how we get beyond while trying to set up the next actual run. All I can really say is that I hope someday, Mark, years from now, at some convention, you and or Dan Gavazdin, who I hear is quite dapper, get the chance to talk to Nick Lowe or Nick Spencer or Zeb Wells or whoever else is free of an NDA and find out why this annual or tryout or whatever this is, this issue that reads like it was written well before the previous six issues, how this wound up as issue 900 of Amazing Spider-Man. And I really hope something similar doesn't happen with issue 1000. Again, I don't think this is actually a bad issue as a, as a one and done 70 page Spider-Man story. There's a lot to recommend in it, I think. As the 900th issue, after the the Spider Office's great success with previous Centennials, now one last bit on like this kind of like overall rambling, and then we'll we'll drill down a little deeper. I do you know want to talk about, and again, it's just kind of part of the the curiosity with this comic, which is you know obviously you know annual Centennial, whatever you want to call it, this this idea of kind of mining from. Spider history, especially like the Dick Lee era. I mean, that is a that is a very common trope, if you will, in these books. That was not to be unexpected. But, you know, of all the thing of all the Dick Lee stuff to pull out and do an entire story about, you know, the human brain and his origins and kind of his his backstory of torment over the, all these years of not being able to know Spider-Man's true identity, that 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 was unexpected to me. Like I, I would not have pulled that one out of a, a lineup if I, if I was going to make a prediction on what, what was coming next. I mean, do you have any particular thoughts about going the human brain route for this issue? Or I mean, again, am I just, is that more of a me problem than a, than a comic problem? You're the reader, Mark. Any you problem is also a comic problem, <laughs> in, in that you're not like. You know, you don't just knee-jerk reject everything if you don't get exactly the story you want. So when something like this doesn't work for you, it's not a you problem. It's, it's something with the comic. I said earlier, or I said earlier on this podcast, like previous episodes, that I have made some peace with Peter's life resetting with the parameters of intellectual property, ongoing storytelling over decades. And part of that is that there's always a reset whenever a new writer takes over, even if some strands of continuity continue. And part of the fun is seeing what will continue. So it was like exciting to see, oh good, Jonah still knows. Like things like that, that's great. Whenever a new writer takes over, it feels to me like they are working from these parameters I'm about to lay out. That the first 100 issues of Amazing Spider-Man plus some occasional events and characters introduced afterwards that were popular enough to stick, that those are the accepted core and the starting point for the character. It's like those are the holy books, and then there's a couple things like Felicia or Venom or Gwen Stacy's death that made it in from the Apocrypha, you know, that are now part of the religion that we all are here for. And so Slot and Spencer and, and now Wells, when they take over and start their run, they always demonstrate their 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 Ditko Lee Ramita bona fides by going back to those first hundred issues to bring back some unexplored scrap and 
that barrel is scraped pretty clean at this point. Uh, so, I mean, I don't know. Who else was there left? I mean, didn't we have the master planner? We already have the master planner. <laughs> so, yeah, the design, I wish it were more exciting. I wish the character hit harder in that, you know, I, I felt more for him or was a little more engaged in it. It all feels a little super scrolly. I did like the giant brain in the scenes with ox tentacles, and I thought the the long flashback you kind you kind of gently knocked in your in your recap earlier. I, I thought that was pretty good, efficient, fun '60s science fiction Marvel storytelling in a fun way. I, I might have been a little unfair to it. I think it was more like I mean, again, like this was a long issue, and you know that's both you know it cuts both ways, and I think like. In your, as you described earlier, thinking in terms of like, oh, this 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 story is, you know, it's one of several in this comic, and it's going to cut off any day now, you know, any minute now. I'm like, you know, when we're in the middle of this long monologue, I'm thinking, oh my god, we're gonna like we're gonna lose valuable like plot, you know, like narrative time to this this bit of exposition about this character that, to me, seemed pretty obviously going to be one and done for this issue <laughs> so anyway let's talk a little bit about the sinister adaptoid i mean this was kind of teased out several months ago when you know when we knew that what you know some of the parameters of this book obviously a villain you know a big bad that is the combined attributes and personalities of the Sinister Six. I mean, that certainly sounds like a like a threat befitting of an annual comic, but uh, not an annual. I see you got me saying it now. That's a threat befitting of a centennial comic. <laughs> you know, it certainly wasn't, you know, this, this villain certainly didn't have the panache of, say, Venom in 300. It just kind of felt more like like that old, you know, telling instead of showing me routine where it was like, you know, like, we we knew this was bad because the comic told us it was bad. These are these are my six mortal enemies, and they all have the their combined abilities and personalities. But like not not much was done in the confines of the story to actually demonstrate. I thought a real threat and menace to this character. I mean, like it, it just felt like like definitely like a show and not and, and not a lot of substance. Do you, do you have any thoughts on on this character here? Start with Venom in three hundred. Because part of my goodwill towards this issue comes from my goodwill towards Wells and the work he's doing and what feels to me like maybe is a difficult situation that he found himself in. You know, it'll be a while before we find out what actually happened behind the scenes with the Spencer run. But this was definitely a case where something went down in the spider office and a run ended kind of disastrously, certainly not fulfilling whatever the ambitions of its writer were. And then somebody new comes in and, oh my God, it's just like right before Venom, just right before issue number 300, where suddenly Michelinie is put on the book in like the very early 290s, and suddenly he's got to whip up an anniversary issue. He really pulled it off. I don't know that Wells was given, you know, the opportunity to do that, but it is interesting that they are kind of similar parallel situations where from the smoking ruins of a run that started well, <laughs> a new a new writer has to come on and try to commemorate everything that's come before in an anniversary issue. Yeah, this is this is no Amazing Spider-Man number 300. But yeah, Super Adaptoid, I I mean, what is there to say about it? Honestly, for me, it felt a little 
super scrolly, as I said before, and also a little too much like those late Spencer run issues where every villain ever gets thrown at Spider-Man, each with diminishing returns. Like, just just nothing, nothing here felt new or exactly threatening, which is why it was a surprise and even a little disappointing to me when, late in the issue, Spider-Man almost dies. Yeah, very true, despite the fact that like I said, I, I don't even know if I really truly got the threat of this. Like, it, it always felt like, you know, and again, it's just it's just the nature of the comic itself and how they set everything up. Like, you know, that this was going to be resolved in a happy, shiny way with Peter, you know, eating birthday cake or whatever. We were told, hey, it's got the combined powers and um, it's got all the personalities. But outside of like certain key moments where the combined personalities started fighting with each other almost more for comedic effect that would like kind of led to the adaptoids undoing. Like, I don't know. I guess what I'm trying long winded way of saying, like I never, they didn't really show the fun that could come out of having this creature with all these different powers and personalities. It was just kind of like, no, trust us. I mean, heck, even when the six, Sinister Six, the real Sinister Six are teaming up with Spidey. We saw a little bit of it, like when Electro shoots electricity at Sandman's hand and turns him into a glass. Best anvil. moment like, of the okay, issue. That's a, the that's, best moment that's, of the issue. And I, I, it's, a, it's an exact perfect illustration of what you're talking about, that the, the, the adaptoid himself could not pull anything like that off. Please, I am sorry for interrupting you. I just got so excited, Mark. Yeah, but that's the thing. It was a good moment. And, you know, maybe if they had done stuff like that, we would have gotten more. It would have felt more ominous, you know, like, oh, my goodness, like this, this, this creature is totally leveled up. And now Spidey's going to have to outsmart it. And he's going to has to outsmart it with the Sinister Six backing him up. Like, you know, what's more precarious than that? Also, in terms of the Sinister Six, we have Craven here. And it does make me question, which Craven are we getting? I you know it does. Does it matter? Does it matter, Alan? I mean, you 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 seem to have some some leniency when it comes to trifles like that. I don't care, but I I, <laughs> I I just don't. You know, to me, this builds off the same kind of confusion and uncertainty we were talking about earlier about who is in the supporting cast at that party and why they're there. I accept that generally speaking, the classic Spider-Man villains always revert to something like their original states, just as Flash and May will always come back from the dead. And here I'm going to say something that I know a lot of listeners will probably hate. I'm saying this is what I think. This is how I feel. I'm not saying you should feel this way as you <laughs> as you file your your pristine issues in their bags and boards. I You don't have to be like me. But honestly... I don't need a convoluted issue explaining how this Craven is back or why Sandman is no longer a beach. I said this a lot during the Spencer run, which had way too many convoluted issues explaining how or why some villain was now in this state. I don't need to waste my time and my money reading stories that undo other bad stories. Like, don't write a bad story to tell me that a bad story was bad. I accept that it's the nature of comics that those stories will get undone. What I do care about is how the characters act and behave in the stories themselves, which is why Peter being flipped to Flash about Flash's death feels so clangingly wrong. I don't mind that Flash is back 100 issues after he died. That doesn't bother me that much. But that Peter wouldn't take it seriously, that annoys me. And that Sandman would just be like, wasn't I a beach somewhere? and make that joke twice in the issue, that 
to me, cheapens Sandman much more than reverting him to his original state does. I know that Marvel prides itself on, quote unquote, its continuity, but like, does it? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, they could say that they do, but like, the fact of the matter is, you know, they're, they're, they're publishing dozens of comics a month. Things happen three editorial offices over that will impact the Marvel, you know, the spider office or something. And, you know, like, yes, there are Eagle Eye fans that pick this out. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. Does it really matter? Like, you know, like if I'm if I am a fan of Amazing Spider-Man, you know, to your point, Alan, I, I, I want to see the content in Amazing Spider-Man treated with the the respect and and you know gravitas which is one of my favorite terms that it warrants you know i i I am with you on that i mean like even though i brought it up which craven the hunter we got here is it craven jr or the clone or whatever like when i was reading this the first time like that was the that was the least of my of the things i wasted bandwidth on like i i was thinking a lot about a lot of other things with this comic that maybe i found problematic but craven was not one of them i i I did bring it up because it just seemed funny to me after the fact like oh yeah craven was there and i don't even know which one he is and like you said sandman like his whole continuity was just kind of like whatever before we we take our first break here do you have any other things related to the super adaptoid and spider-man's confrontation with him that you want to point out as as you know being remarkable in some way run my theory by you as to why the super adaptoid didn't feel more tense or scary like the the confrontation didn't feel more tense or scary or dangerous for spider-man and i I, to do so i want to single out the moment where spider-man is almost killed that i mentioned a minute ago and he's almost killed because he won't back down from a fight he knows he's going to lose like that's a big moment that's a big beat for our hero to be willing to sacrifice himself to save a living brain that has caused all of his recent problems for the last few hours and has endangered everyone he loves his choice to do that felt felt rushed and and maybe even a little cheap even though honestly it's a beat i know i could buy if it were better prepared for and sold to us, just as I could buy the threat of the super adaptoid or this bickering uh, Silver Age Sinister Six, if that were better sold to us. But this issue has no Peter narration. And I think that's the problem. We're just watching him do what he does and make the decisions he makes without him telling us. And I know we all believe you should show, not tell, show, not tell, blah, 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 blah. I, you know, in superhero comics, that's not always it. Part of what we love in Peter Parker is his voice and hearing him process this stuff and and think it through and make these decisions and real and, and come again and again to the realizations of what matters most. This is written as if his I'm not going to let anybody kill, I'm not going to let anybody die are like just his default factory settings, not like issues he struggles with or has to think about. And it's so much more interesting when we're in his head in some way. And and I know Wells, I think Wells knows that. You know, in, in issue, I remember in issue five, the great scene where Peter's starting to get his life back together and is following the gangsters around all day. You know, there's a dash of Parker narration there that that just really 
brings you into the scene, into the moment, and puts you in his head and into the suit and behind the mask and facing what he's facing and feeling what he's feeling. And here it's not. He's just much more kind of like a character who does a bunch of stuff and then almost dies, but no big deal. He's saved because he was nice to some octopus arms. And and that that to me isn't good enough. Why don't we take a quick break to chat about the slack and then we can resume some of this conversation after that break. Hundreds of listeners like you hang out in our community of Spider-Man fans on Slack. The amazing Spider-Slack community is absolutely free to join, and you can jump into active conversations with awesome people about collecting, conventions, movies, new comics, old comics, and more. Yeah, it's funny, Alan. When I was at Terrificon this past weekend, uh, one of the listeners of our show who was there was was constantly posting stuff that he and I were doing or listening to on the Slack. So it was almost like I was there for once because uh, <laughs> I'm usually not. But Dan is and other people are. So if you want to join this awesome Spider-Man community, just follow the link in the description and be sure to say hi. And once you are there, be sure to let us know what you think of this new episode or you know what you thought of me at the con you know did i did i was i nice enough to you did i shake your hand i don't know i mean are we shaking hands still it's hard to tell but anyway go to slack and and check it out and join in on the conversation all right so you know we we we've we've touched upon the art of this book a little bit you know, I, I kind of want to break down and spotlight Ed McGinnis, uh, the visual storyteller here. We were all so excited when Amazing Spider-Man relaunched with, I shouldn't say we were all, I was very excited, and I think others were, that John Romita Jr. was joining the team and, you know, making his return to Spider-Man. And, you know, we've talked about through these first five issues, Alan, just how, how, great of a storyteller Ramita is. And, I, you know, I, I feel like, frankly, as good as Wells has been with his with his plots, I feel that J.R.J.R. has been lifting him up a bit in terms of how he paces a page and how he plots it out himself visually. With McGinnis, I think the book, like page by page, looked great. And probably artistically, like from a, from a totally objective standpoint, you could probably argue was better than what you would get with Ramita. I mean, it's cleaner, it's brighter, the the pencils and inks are crisper, the the color palette was 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 brighter and and it just really worked. Like it really looked great. With that said, I don't know how much of a story was being told by McGinnis here through his visuals. It it, it kind of just felt like Splashy image, splashy image, and then some cluttered panels, and then some unclear storytelling. Like there were several parts where I actually had a hard time finding, figuring out what was happening based on the visuals, and and things either felt rushed or like they weren't clear. I don't know. Did you did you have a, a specific take on McGinnis here? Am I being too harsh here? I mean, am I am I just too much of a JRJR fanboy to to reconcile? It's a 70-page main story where the second half of the book, when we've got an adaptoid and a Sinister Six going, it gets cluttered and sometimes not always easy to follow. I mean, I think there's loads of knockout pages in this book. I think this book, I'm with you, it looks great, especially, I think, the first half. And, and my favorite my favorite part art-wise, that the one splash page that's not of Spider-Man is, you know, the giant brain. 
the giant green brain. And then that is immediately followed by the flashback scene, which I thought had the most inventive, engaging art in the whole issue. I, I really, really liked that, you know, kind of tribute to 60s Marvel science fiction weirdness that, that was happening there. Science run amok Marvel style is one of the great delights of comics that the movies have never been able to touch. It's always, we're making a bland fusion device, not here is a giant brain. So anyway, I, I, I liked all that, but I, I agree with you that the action, especially in the second half of the book, occasionally felt muddled, kind of hard to follow in a way that's not new for Spider-Man comics. I mean, that's been, you know, since Brand New Day, I felt like that has been happening with some regularity. But there are things I liked here. There are things I liked here. And I got to praise the slightly cartoonish faces here. Definitely one place where I think this is a little better than some of the Romita issues. I mean, than, than some of the recent Romita issues in what this aspect is face. I, I was not going to mistake Felicia for Aunt May here as I actually did in issue five. And my favorite, well, you know, my, my other favorite moment art-wise, other than the flashbacks and the giant brain, was Anna Maria pumping her fists and beaming when Spider-Man wakes up. Like, she's been through this so many times. She knows, okay, we're good now. This, and she's kind of turned on by it. I, I feel like Ed Beginnis and Zeb Wells kind of get Anna Maria in a way I like. She's a little, she's a little out of her mind in, in a funny way. I, I hope she keeps coming back. That said, this Robbie Robertson looked way off model to me, especially since Romita Sr.'s original Robbie Robertson design is such a specific person, so much more a specific person than a lot of uh, longtime comic characters. Like, I couldn't tell it's Flash Thompson just from his face, but Robbie Robertson, you could tell just from his face, usually, not in this issue. So some of this, some of that, a lot of great stuff in it, some just marvelous splash pages that actually felt like they had time to breathe in the story rather than just like being crammed in, which happens a lot in current 20-page Marvel books. Just to kind of add on to your point and kind of like the cartoonishness of it, like actually one of my favorite spreads was I think it was a double page one. It's it's when Jonah first shows up and he's breaking through the house, you know, the side of the house with the octopus arms and his face is just so ridiculously cartoonishly expressive. And like, you know, I've just like I'm like. Like, I feel like this should be like a, a poster somewhere, and you know, uh, 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 you know, I guess of a J. Jonah Jameson super fan of which who isn't. But, you know, you don't necessarily think of him as someone you buy art of. It was a lot of fun. And 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 it actually like <laughs> kind of served as a juxtaposition a little bit of of how the rest of the book wasn't always as much fun for me because uh, it, 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 it was kind of, you know, this kind of pre- you know, precociousness of it and that moment that that kind of, I think, as the book started to settle into the superhero conflict, kind of became more of like, just like, let's let's get some let's get some poses. Let's let's do some, you know, big splashy pages and 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 then we'll just go to the next one. Kind of just again, kind of went back to that, like checking the box syndrome and not really looking to tell a story with uh, all these set images. And, you know, to just a kudos to you, like, yes, the stuff with the brain was similar in terms of its kind of lightness, silliness, and like you said, kind of weird sci-fi-ness, but it loses, the comic loses that spirit as it gets further in. Know where this story is going, the story gets less and less interesting. 
it, it hits the familiar beats. But I thought the first 20 pages or so were so promising and exciting for all these reasons you are pointing out. And then what came after that was an okay Spider-Man comic. One last thing to talk about. Uh, well, uh, for this story specifically, and you alluded to this earlier when we were talking about the, the, the villains and the stakes and the moments, but like Zeb Wells in the sense of humor. Now, like, like I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to start off with a little bit of a soapbox rant here, which is like when they announced that Zeb Wells was taking over as the writer of the amazing Spider-Man, you know, one of the reasons why I was initially given a little bit of pause to that was, you know, even though Zeb was kind of credited with creating the good parts of the Spider-Man beyond arc that had preceded, it, I was like, I don't know, man, like Zeb Wells, he strikes me as like the jokey writer. And, you know, we got the jokey writer with Chip Zdarsky on Spectacular Spider-Man a few years ago. And yes, I know he won an Eisner for one of those comics. But a lot of the, the comics that preceded the Eisner winning one were kind of like, corny and like the humor was it's just not the right kind of Spider-Man humor. Like, I just don't want to see Spider-Man is not Deadpool, you know, like we, we've said this before on the show in different iterations. I'm going to say it again. Spider-Man is not Deadpool. Spider-Man is funny, but he's not Deadpool. It's a different kind of sense of humor. When Zeb was kind of curbing that jokiness that I felt he had become known for in the first five issues of this run, you know, part of me was like, OK, well, maybe the combination of him and J.R.J.R., even though J.R.J.R. has certainly worked on funny like subversively funny books in the past, like Kick-Ass, maybe it's kind of keeping Zeb's worser instincts under heel. In this comic, I just felt like those bad go-for-the-joke instincts were just on full display. And like, like there were a lot of just bad jokes or just groaning jokes or like, why would you do the joke here? Like, you know, we, we've already said, we've already alluded to it a few times. The, 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 the line with Flash, like, you know, Peter sees Flash for the first time from his standpoint alive. And, you know, they kind of like Flash kind of puts him down and Peter's just kind of like walks away from him like, well, glad you're alive again, Flash. And it was like, uh, like, like, like that just feels like a really cheap way to end the moment. And then, like you said, all the stuff with Sandman talking about his status quo, like, am I a beach? Am I a villain? Am I a this? I don't even know. I'm just going to do stuff. Like it's, 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 it's too, it's too meta and silly. And, and I feel like you, it, it undermines the story you're telling and it lowers the stakes. And I don't like it, it. I don't find it enjoyable after a while because I don't find it funny. Like, like there are funny, funnier things in some of the backups later on that I legitimately laughed out loud at. I can't say I did as much for, the Zeb Wells portion. Did, did you have any reaction to the humor in this besides what you've already alluded to? Yeah. And I have some theories about it. I always have theories, not like Dan, we're not going to sound an alarm when it's talking about my theory comes up, you know, I'm, I'm not going to parse outfits trying to make sense of kindred, but with the flash moment, that's something Peter would think not say out loud. And that's what we lose when Peter doesn't have a narration. You know, I mean, I miss thought bubbles. I'm willing to roll with narration boxes. I, I was reminded of uh, one of the first times when I was a young reader, when I realized that annuals don't mean much. And that was the annual in the mid 80s that Stan Lee supposedly wrote himself, where a scorpion crashes into the Daily Bugle. And it's it's related to this one in a lot of ways. It's general inconsequentiality. It's, it's bugle setting, Jonah being involved. But there's also a moment where 
people in the office are rude to Peter. And there is some woman in, I remember this very vividly because I tried to I tried to parse this panel and understand what exactly this was saying and kind of hoping it wasn't the weirdly dirty joke that I thought it was. There is a woman with a big frizzy black hair and wearing a gray sweater. And she is like all women in a comic book, ridiculously, ludicrously busty. And she says something rude to Peter and Peter sulks off uh, and whatever rude thing she said to Peter, use the word squash in it. And as Peter skulks off, he thinks, someday I'll show her what I'd like to squash. And I was reading it at like age 12 thinking, is he talking about her breasts? And I looked it up <laughs> a while ago, that moment, and it's still just as confused and uncertain. And I'm not quite clear what it's trying to say as, as, as it seemed to me then. But... That's Peter Parker. He thinks these things and sulks off rather than say them out loud like a real prick to Flash Thompson. That that That's an issue. But like I said, I have theories. I have theories. I've appreciated the down-to-earth feeling of the earlier Wells issues in the way we're not getting page-long bits. I like a lot of Dan Slott's run, but he also had a weakness for doing a bit. And, and I, I like not getting as many of those. But over this issue's massive length, it feels at times like Wells is just being stretched thin. There's so many pages, so many, so many dialogue balloons to fill that, and he's also going for a more upbeat tone that I think the art uh, kind of demands. So I don't know. I don't have 70 pages of funny things for Spider-Man to say during fights with non-serious fights with the Sinister Six and a super adaptoid. And it's not a surprise that Zeb Wells doesn't either. So we get some clunkers and we especially get the clunkers in moments like that with Flash or with Sandman, where as a writer, he has to do something that I think is kind of technically incredibly difficult, which is address the reader's concerns about the continuity issues offhandedly in just a stray line or two in scenes that are about something else. And so his solution is like the same dumb solution they use in all the Marvel movies, and I'm so tired of it. Whenever one character's life gets complicated or seems weirder than the other characters is to make a hand-wavy joke about it, and it feels kind of like a crutch. But I gotta say, as somebody thinking through the process of how a story like this gets put together, I feel like I understand why that's the choice they went with. I don't think it's a good choice. Give Peter narration. Let him think about how weird this is rather than make dumb jokes about it out loud. I guess, you know, just a couple of other jokes that I thought kind of went flat with me. You know, we had Aunt May, you know, like they were towards the end. It was like, well, it's not the weirdest Parker party I've ever been to. And, you know, no offense, May. And she's like, no, you know, that's, that's a, you know, like that's a legit one. It was like, I don't know. This may have that kind of sense of humor at this point with Peter and you know also just like everything with the octopus arms at the end kind of like stalking Peter and Felicia with like little love hearts around it I was like is this really like oh like are we are we doing this you know it, it, it kind of reminded me and you know not to be the person who talks about the last movie they just saw but I I, I recently saw Thor Love and Thunder like who hasn't and you know and similar to how you feel about this comic Alan, I enjoyed Thor Love and Thunder, but I also recognize the fact that, you know, they took a, a movie that was fine, that could have been elevated if it maybe took itself a little bit more seriously, but instead, like, wanted to just go for the joke at every at every 
every turn. That that just doesn't sit right with me when you just when you're just overloading it. So you know, I, I'm probably talking repetitively at this point. Do you have anything more insightful to add to this element of the conversation? Yes, I want to point out how the all the things that were disappointing about this issue as a piece of uh, incontinuity storytelling for me actually gave one of those jokes you single out a little more weight and bite than it probably had when it was originally written in 2010 in Windows 97 or whatever Seth Wells was using at the time. And that is May's line about this is not the, was it the worst or weirdest Parker party? I don't remember exactly. Weirdest, you're right. Maze crack yeah. to me actually seemed to align with the end of the last issue, where she's coming closer than ever to acknowledging out loud that her nephew makes everything hard for her and lies to her all the time, and that they can't have any single normal occasion ever pass in their lives. She should be frustrated. She lives in the same hell he does. The arms shipping Peter and Felicia was cute and goofy. I laughed. I didn't take it too seriously. I don't know. It felt kind of like, I don't know, uh, something that might happen on this at the at a random ending of the, of an episode of The Simpsons or something. <laughs> like, okay, sure. Are we? But are we supposed to believe that actually happened? But yeah, the humor is definitely a letdown at some points. So I'm with you on that. Mark and I definitely preferred the more serious tone Wells is striking elsewhere in this run. So let's just kind of quickly touch on some of these backup stories here. I mean, like, you know, they're all like a page or two a pop. So I, I don't know how much depth you want to get. I will say like off the, off the top, Daniel Kibblesmith, who, who, you know, I know I dissed Twitter earlier, but uh, Kibblesmith's probably one of my favorite followers on Twitter. I think he had the joke of the issue with the the library card um, and returning the books when uh, Peter started taking out the Ayn Rand book and, you know, was like, hey, we all had the weird college phase. I that that just got a legit like laugh out loud moment from me. That's a subversive joke that works for me <laughs> in a lot of ways. Um, but I mean, for the most part, everything else is kind of, you know, the the, the typical backup schlocky B stories in an annual that you would get, or I guess a centennial. I mean, I don't, I don't know if anything stood out for me. I mean, like I kind of was hoping to get something with a little more emotional weight with like the dance slot, Marcos Martin combo, since they do such beautiful work together. But again, it was kind of forgettable for me. So I don't know. I mean, did anything stick out to you in the backups that you wanted to call out? Happy to admit that I, as I said at the start of this podcast, I've read most issues of Amazing Spider-Man, except a couple in those really iffy runs. I did not read the entire Jimmy Kimmel thing. I Life is too short. Life is absolutely too short for that. Uh, you know, I loved it years ago when, when the West Coast Avengers encounter David Letterman just randomly in one issue. And it doesn't feel like <laughs> like this was done to get the issue on the show. <laughs> you know, and this felt like I don't I don't need Jimmy Kimmel in real life. Why would I need him in a comic book? <laughs> uh, but I, I'm with you. I laughed a lot at the Kibble Smith one. If you're going to do a bit, bring it like make it a bit, make it big, make it make it land. I appreciate it being not part of the main issue. I don't need all my characters talking like they're doing sketch comedy. And that increasingly is a thing at Marvel. I like a lot of Kelly Thompson stories, but I've been reading her recent uh, Black Widow issues. And it's just, there's so much sketch comedy patter in them that really takes the edge off what uh, what I think should be like a suspenseful you know, run of stories. 
The last decade, Marvel's been trying to find a tone for Amazing Spider-Man somewhere in between Craven's Last Hunt and Spider-Ham. And Slot and Spencer both hit it right for stretches of their runs. And I'm hoping Wells can do that too, for longer, without with, without getting nuked by the spider office from orbit for whatever for whatever his long term plans are. Before we give our reviews, I'm you know the the dapper Dan cannot keep himself away for long or forever. He said, "Mark, he be, he said, sir, sir, hat in hand." No, I'm I'm doing another bit now. Can I just offer some thoughts up? So here we go. Before we give our grades, we're going to turn the uh, uh, microphone over to Dan so he can plug some of his deep thoughts into the podcast. I'm assuming he's doing this from like the rocking chair where he is rocking gentle Ben to sleep. Take it away, Dan Gavazdan. Hey, everybody. It's Dapper Dan Gavazdan here, or should I say Daddy Dan Gavazdan here, because I'm calling you guys from neck deep in a pile of dirty diapers. Hey, thanks to Mark and Alan who did such a great job on this review of Amazing Spider-Man number 900 that I don't really have a ton to add, so I'll attempt to be brief on my thoughts here. I, I did just want to kind of get my thoughts on 900 into this episode because it is such a big issue, and I don't mean that just in size. I also mean in terms of its historical impact. But I kind of agree with them largely. I fall on both sides of their points here. So I apologize if I'm going to be repeating some of their points. I'll try not to. But I will say, overall, I was disappointed in this issue. I I think Centennials are great opportunities to do something dramatic with the title. And this was not that. But there is something powerful about an evergreen classic Spider-Man story full of Stan Lee-isms even if it's the villain saying them. However, I felt like this issue really cut tonally, stylistically, artistically, and characteristically against the Zeb Wells run that we've been getting thus far. Nothing about this issue read like a Zeb Wells comic to me, almost to the point that I don't believe he wrote it. I mean, I do. He definitely wrote it. But you could easily convince me otherwise. If you picked any random member of the Beyond team and said that they wrote this, I would probably believe you. Although I do think it maintains some of Zeb Wells' smart story structuring. But what I feel like we're seeing play out in this comic is the divide between Disney's Marvel mascot, Spider-Man, who's defined by a couple of simple tropes and characteristics, and the ongoing serialized Spider-Man who aches to grow and present a more complicated hero. And for me, I will always choose the latter. And I think that's what Wells Run has done so well so far. But this feels to me like Disney IP character product versions of Spider-Man rather than the guy that we've been reading about in the comic all this time. And I get why they might do that. 900 will be a huge jumping on point for casual readers, and by giving them something more accessible and recognizable, they might be able to jump on this comic run, and I always welcome new readers to comics. And so in that regard, I think it has a lot of value. But for myself, I just don't respond to this version of Peter, who has literally no internal monologue here, and is completely selfless throughout the story. Alan pointed this out, but it is best exemplified by Peter just opting to lay his life on the line for the living brain. 
there's a certain point where Peter's no one dies or great power, great responsibility credo goes a bit too far, you know, and he's willing to take it to extremes. I just don't believe that he would value his life so little, at least without some internal struggle. I mean, he just met this guy a few seconds ago after trying to kill him. Is he really going to lay his life on the line for him? I, I believe it in an issue like Amazing Spider-Man 800 where he saves the Green Goblin from Jonah, but I just don't believe it here. And I think it renders Spider-Man as a bit of a cartoon character, which is how I would categorize nearly all the other characters in this story. Felicia being the jealous but sexy reward Peter gets at the end is the most strange to me. I honestly don't know what to make of how Black Cat is rendered here, or if this is meant to be read as anything more than just cheesecake for the reader and Peter. Even the character inclusions meant to be a fig leaf to longtime readers come across as odd. Specifically, the disgraced cop turned goblin cult member Vin Gonzalez. He's the kind of inclusion you'd make with a cursory knowledge of Spider-Man comics intending to titillate fans, but if you were actually unaware of the history with that character. The same can be said of the living brain, who is presented here like he's been gone for 800 issues, rather than being a consistent supporting cast member over the past decade. The villains suffer this way too. I can't ever tell if Dr. Octopus is meant to be a threat or a joke. And with how much his characterization has oscillated so wildly post-superior, I doubt I'm alone. But on the positive side of the cartoonification of Spider-Man is that Ed McGuinness's art, cartoonish, is often stunning in this issue and reminiscent of the best of classic Walt Disney animation. Each character maintains a unique style and frame that sets them apart. There's no mistaking the short and squat physique of Dr. Octopus for the lean and rigid form of the new living brain. There's not an errant ink, which is astounding given how many inkers there are on this issue, and Marcio Menez's colors add so much flair and drama, enough to solidify him, I believe, as a top talent in the industry. Mark and Alan articulated more of my thoughts on the art, which is audience-friendly, but also a great mirror to the writing. If the writing is a bit generic and leaning on iconography, so is the art. Contrast this with J.R.J.R.'s less quote-unquote beautiful art that does so much more with the comic book medium and storytelling, and you again have a perfect comparison to Wells' earlier work in this run. And that's where I come down on this. This is a fine comic for outsiders and those looking for Spider-Man, the icon. But this is a terribly average comic for those who are interested in Spider-Man, the character, and Peter Parker, the person. And so, for me, it gets a grade of a C. Thanks again, Mark and Alan. I love your discussion, and I can't wait to rejoin you soon in the next coming weeks. All right, Alan. Do you have a do you have a grade for this behemoth? It's a tricky one. I feel like you got to take the cost into account. If you just pick this up, we're willing to spend ten dollars on Spider Man. We're not reading the other issues of this run. You pri- you probably would enjoy it maybe more than I did. I thought the first half was legitimately pretty strong, and then it kind of it felt like we're circling the same drain. Peter's been circling for a hundred issues now, so I'm gonna go B minus. I am a, a, a letter below you, but I think based on what some people heard me saying on online earlier or even just in conversation, you're probably expecting worse. But yeah, I'm a C minus. I, I, I see what you're saying. 
you and I had a quick exchange over Twitter where you were kind of like, I was like, oh man, this, this, this issue sucked or something like that. You're like, actually, I kind of enjoyed it. And I was like, okay, I need to reread this thing very carefully before this review, because I, I, I want to make sure that we could have a, a, a good conversation, you know, as you do. And it, it, it definitely, I, I picked something up on some things, even the things that annoyed me, I still picked up on things that I got out of it that I liked more than I thought I did the first time. But that said, it's still a below average comic for me. And, you know, if I really wanted to go like, you know, hell, hellfire and brimstone, I, I could go even lower on the idea of it's a centennial. It should have been better. But like, I'm not going to do that just in isolation as a story, you know, had some merits. But for the, and the art was really nice. But for the most part, this didn't really work for me. So below average, C minus. Sorry for making my grade so long-winded. I just felt like I needed to justify it. So with that said, if you find this show entertaining and valuable, please consider supporting us by recommending Amazing Spider Talk to a friend. And if you're able, becoming a member of our Patreon. We can only bring you this content with the support of our Patreon members, and we owe the show's success to every single one of them, and we are constantly making exclusive content for our members. So why not take $3.99, the price of a new comic, guffaw, and put it towards a month's subscription to support the show and start receiving our Patreon content. That way you'll hear our Patreon-exclusive review podcast on every new issue of Amazing Spider-Man the same week it comes out instead of waiting for it to arrive in our public podcast feed. And if you contribute $10 a month, you gain access to exclusive artwork from famous Spider-Man artists commissioned exclusively for our members. We've recently commissioned Juan Ferreira to depict the black suit Spider-Man and Daredevil to help memorialize our transition into the Peter David era of spectacular Spider-Man. That's one of Alan's favorites. Plus, every episode, we release a new episode-specific desktop background created for us by artist Nick Cagnetti for our patrons to enjoy. But we know this is a hard time for everybody, as it is for us, too. You know, inflation, gas prices, milk prices. I don't even know what else is going on. Uh, so we appreciate anyone who supports the show just by listening and sharing. But if you have the means, please join our Patreon to support the continued existence of our show. Just follow the link in the description. And thank you to all the members who already make this show possible by contributing. All right, Alan, why don't you bring us on home? It's that time, Mark. I agree. It's time for all good things to come to an end. So we want to say thank you to you, the listeners and viewers, for tuning in to this episode of The Amazing Spider Talk. This episode was edited by Rick Coast with production support from Andy Myers. Our artwork comes handcrafted by artists Ron Friends, Sal Buscema, and Ray Sumzer. Our theme songs were produced by Rylan Bojack, Tony Thaxton, and spider Mage. Our animated intro was created and performed by Josh Sutton from the Panels to Pixels YouTube channel. So, Alan, until I input my consciousness into your body and make you collect every single issue of Amazing Spider-Man while criticizing the validity of annuals... What's our motto? With great podcasts, there must also come the amazing spider talk.
I still can't come up with it. The name of that annoying British talk show host. Like, it would have been <laughs> such a good bit. And I trusted myself. James James, James Corden. Corden. I trusted myself that I would get to James. I would pull his name up. He would my find it. By the time I got to that point in the bit. And nope. That's why you don't write bits. That's why you don't. Well, you write them. You don't just improvise them. Yeah, I would say we're not we're not no, professionals. We're not. I mean, well, you you're 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 kind of a professional. Not but, not at you know, this. I'm, I'm definitely. Not. 